21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the third installment of the GES Insightful Classroom Teacher Series. And today, I have my friend and colleague, Kristen Anson here. Uh, Kristen, for the record, state your name and age. <laughs> I'm kidding. You can. You, how about how about we just I'm begin? Twenty-one forever, Andy. <laughs> how about we just begin with a little bit of backstory into Kristen Anson's life. Sure. Well, um, I've always, it's kind of sad, but I've always wanted to be a teacher. I always, that's just what I always wanted to do. And I also have always been interested in art. And I always tell my students um, that I was never the best one in the class at art, but I was always the kid puttering around at home, tinkering at home, doing stuff, playing constantly with materials, driving my parents nuts. Um, I went to university out in Washington state and I minored in art and ended up majoring in special ed. So you said something to me before, sorry Mm -hmm. to cut you off, Um, but you said something before about not being able to major in art. Yeah. So tell tell us a little bit about Um, that. Yeah. I was, I was actually discouraged, um, from majoring in art because, uh, at the time people said, well, you're going to be a public school teacher in the United States. And, um, there are not many art teachers. Art is the first thing to get cut. So I actually went to Providence college for my first year and I had a professor who was deaf, who really changed, um, the way I thought about special education. And, um, I changed my major to special ed, um, but wanted to keep that art piece kind of a just in case in my back pocket. If I ever found a job teaching art, I've been teaching art for 17 years now. Yeah. <laughs> but so you um, ended up on on the path that you think you were you were meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I I agree too. You're you're great at what you do and um so after Washington or after your university experience. Okay, I taught at a little private school in the woods in Spokane, Washington, which is a fantastic first 3 years and I did that and got my master's degree at night. And then I decided to move abroad. To a very good school. To a fantastic school. And uh, I. Which is? Eunice Hanoi. United Nations. International School in Hanoi. Yeah. yeah. I went to the ECIS at the time job fair in Vancouver, Washington, drove by myself eight European hours. European Council of International That's Schools. That's right. Sorry Africa. to use all the acronyms. Yeah, yeah. Um, drove by myself all the way from Spokane to Vancouver, went to this job fair and. Um, Scored. That's Dr. Nice. Fran Rhodes, who yeah. is a, a or was a big name before she retired in international education, gave me a very green 24, 25 year old. She gave me a chance, and um, what she, a great school yeah, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, and, and then from there you went to. From there, I moved to South America and was at Academia Cotopaxi in Quito, Ecuador, for mm-hmm. three years. And after teaching art, teaching art yeah. as well, and then um, ISPP, the International and, School of Phnom yeah. Penh, and this is our link up. And for those uh, people listening that uh, work at public schools or private schools back in the states or Canada, 
um, the the world seems so huge, right? And then you go and you teach internationally. And the amazing thing is that uh, the longer you stay in the system, uh, the more connections you have and, and you have a solid network there. So mm-hmm. Kristen and I actually taught together at ISPP International School of Phnom Penh. Neela as well was the nurse mm-hmm. at the time. And that was the first real integration that I was excited about. So just to snip it <laughs> into that, uh, I was teaching early years PE as well as elementary PE. Kristen obviously teaching art. And I was doing this uh, road signs kind of like transportation unit in PE. Kristen had them make really cool little cardboard box cars. That's right. And then uh, the summit of the task was for them to drive these beautiful little cars that they had made through a traffic course that we had set up with teachers dressed in police uniforms as directing traffic and elephant crossing and all that. It was fantastic. Yeah. So from ISPP, you ended up at our lovely school here. Yeah. 2011, I came here and we've been here ever since. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. So um, I like to give people listening just a backstory into each of my guests and, and their journey. Um, but Kristen is here not to talk about that so much, but about some wonderful things she's doing in her classroom. Uh, so uh, what are you here to talk about today, Kristen? I'm here um, to talk about um, leveraging student interest and how we as teachers can encourage students to use their choices and their ideas in your subject area. So in particular, so mm-hmm. you're a visual arts teacher, right. you teach grades three to five. Right. And over the past few years, you've been tinkering with a new approach, which um, on the surface seems quite daunting. Yeah. Um, so talk specifically about what that approach sure. is. Sure. Um, the approach has actually been around since the 70s, mm-hmm. um, and it's called Teaching for Artistic Behavior. And it's the whole idea that the student is the artist and the teacher is kind of the guide on the side to scaffold the learning and to give the student um, different experiences, allow them to create, allow them to um, use their own ideas and choose their own media for different projects. Right. And <clears throat> when I look at uh, coming here last year and seeing you starting to roll it out this year, you, you've gained some valuable insight, I think, mm-hmm. from some courses, from experience, yep. from connecting with others, but also from some courses you've taken. Right. So in particular, uh, talk about uh, the learning space, because a lot of what you do to make your program successful has, you know, I don't want to say nothing to do with visual arts or the elements of art. Mm-hmm. That's obviously everything you're striving to address. But the bigger thing happening behind the scenes is the structure and organization. Yeah. So speak up to the biggest learning that you have experienced over the last year and how you're implementing these changes with success this year. Sure, yeah. Um, It's actually been three years, which is kind of amazing that this has been going on. And it really wasn't until May of this year where I kind of had an epiphany after I took a class in flipping the art room. And it doesn't mean flipping the art room like I'm giving children stuff to take home or videos to read at home. It means that um, any of the direct instruction Um, that I'm doing instead of doing it in person one-on-one what I did was I created 
videos of how to do it. Um, so that is a huge piece of the structural bit underpinning um, the organization of the room. I was always under the impression, because I'd read about teaching for artistic behavior before and how art teachers, what they do is they have their classroom set up with different what they call studio centers. And the kids enter the art room and they can choose whatever center they want and they can create whatever they want. That was my perception of teaching for artistic behavior. Sounds amazing. However, but yeah. number one, how are they going to learn the skills? How are going to how are, am I going to stay true to the um, concepts? I'm a P, we're, I teach at a PYP mm-hmm. school. That's the framework that I use. And also, how can I do it without that being a complete chaotic disaster? Um, so, it's been a three year kind of learning curve of um, definitely an evolution. Of, yeah, an evolution, an ebb, an ebb and flow, and a, a rearranging really kind of of my philosophy of what I wanted to get across. So basically, um, the kids come in, and as soon as they come into the room, everybody has a magnet with their picture on it. And there is a map of the classroom, and the classroom is constantly evolving too. But for right now, so we just, have, just, I just yeah, want sorry. to interject, no problem. Uh-huh. But you have a magnet for every single student. Yep. So you have all of your classes. There's magnets on the back of a shelf or a metal yep, shelf. Exactly. So you come in, and on the right, a meter right there, as soon as you get in, you see all of the classes, for example, grade three A, uh, A, grade three B, grade. 3C mm-hmm. and so on. So the kids know where their class is. They right. pick their magnet. Then you have an overview of the art room with the studios. Right. So then they take the magnet and then choose a studio for that day, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so they choose a studio and they take their magnet and they put it where they where they want to work for the day. So the map um, that is also on the board, it only has a certain number of seats at each table so that they're, then that's a classroom management piece so that it's not completely overwhelmed. And the number of seats depends on whatever media is at that table for the day. So they take their magnet, put it on where they want to sit. Um, and, and we've trained them a few times to do that. And it's all about structures and modeling and things like that. So they, um, go to their media center and then they get set up and depending upon what we are doing or what they are doing that day. Um, I've given them information about what they need to do to set up. So for example, if they are still working on techniques, what they would do is they'd get their iPad, get their iPad holder, their headphones, their sketchbook. Um, and then they take what I call a technique sheet, which is specific to that studio center. So they chose painting. They go to the painting center, get everything set up, take one of the technique sheets for painting. And that has a QR code directly on the sheet. To, to the flip video. To the flip video that I created. Yeah, and this is the big thing, is that um, there is a lot of work that happens behind the scenes. Tons. and And the work that you put into your videos, I mean, you've told me, we've, we've talked about, you put hours into these videos. Yeah. Um, but as a result of flipping the classroom in this sense and having the QR codes to the videos, I've come in and I've watched them. And, and you even explain in the video, there's pause times in the video now it's time to pause and for you to try this yes. before they continue. And, and that piece is actually critical because I played around with flipped classroom before. I played around with doing stop motions. I played around with quite long videos, but um, this is 
the type of videos that I'm using are what I call stop and do videos. Mm -hmm. So, um, I never talk more than three minutes Mm -hmm. at a time and the kids know that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when it's time to do something to practice a skill that I've just shown them, a slide comes up that says, pause this video and practice shading. And then my voice says that. So they know exactly what to do and they are free. Obviously if they didn't catch something to go back, watch it again. And I also, um, try to, Oh, well, I'll talk about that later, but the proposals for their summative wow assessment, the wow proposals, the wonderful original work of art proposal that they give to you, then right. they have to go through those steps. Right. And right? it's essentially a creative process yeah. of following the creative process. But what I'll do, and those videos are also tailored to our unit. So I'll do a quick review of what we did the last week at the beginning of the wow proposal so that if they don't remember they can do that or they can fast forward through it it's and and what's built in here this is a beautiful thing so if you are not an art teacher listening to this (laughs) imagine applying this in a math setting or language arts setting or a pe setting or a music setting because there are steps involved it'll Mm -hmm. work in any subject area in any classroom so the beautiful thing about these these sheets that you created, you got the QR code there with an instructional video that you created ahead of time. Right. You build those pauses in there to ensure like now it's time to start. You need to have three different pencils and an exactly. eraser, whatever it is. Yep. You take nothing for granted. Yep. Very explicit. Yep. Um, and then what's the, the beautiful thing that I love is that at, at one point when they've done the f- a first draft, now it's time specifically to get peer feedback. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough as well because after they get peer feedback, they have to act on that feedback, right. dismiss it if they want, right. get more feedback, but then uh, create a second draft. And that was, I think, you and Linda Kent, the other art teacher, right. made that modification. Exactly. And um, then they recreate a second draft. So this would work in language arts. It would work in math. It would yeah. work in skill development in PE or music. It is um, phenomenal to see when it's in motion. And it's not, I mean, the kids are still doing it in your class, right? Mm -hmm. And learning it, but it's really working well. Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting to see as far as the peer feedback goes as a teacher is when you as an adult give children advice, particularly on their art, you know, you don't know whether they're taking the advice because you're an authority figure and okay, the teacher told me this, so this is what I should do. Um, but when a peer, especially a peer that they choose gives them feedback, um, it's a complete game changer. They actually use it (laughs) and they want, they use it because they want to, not because they have to. Yeah. And exactly. And you haven't mandated that they have to use the feedback. You know, and that's the the other great thing about it, you know, but just going through that process of seeking critical feedback and making that critical feedback a part of the the learning journey. Yeah. And wait, just one thing though. So they do have to use some sort of feedback, but what I did incorporate into this was, okay, you, you do this process of peer feedback, which is very explicit. Um, you can take that person's feedback, your partner's feedback, and create a second one. If you're not happy with the person that you chose their suggestion for you, you are welcome to find somebody else and ask them. If you're not happy with that, raise your hand and we'll have a chat about it. So they're not forced to take. And you said last week that in 17 years of teaching art, um, this year you have been able to spend the most time ever 
one-on-one with students giving timely feedback. Yep. It's amazing. It's, it's really unbelievable because I think about in the past how much time I spent teaching skills that haven't really changed, you know, shading, mm-hmm. shading is shading, <laughs> learning yeah. how to, to uh, use pressure on a pencil. It's, these are skills that if I can make a really good video for them to follow, um, they can do that on their own. And then when they get to the higher order, okay, how can I use this in my piece? How mm-hmm. can I combine this with another media? I have a question about that. That's when my expertise can be far more valuable than the very, very basic level of skills. Right. So somebody wanting to implement this type of, you know, teaching for artistic behavior, but taking the model and the organization behind the model, again, might seem daunting, but what's some advice you might have for people just considering trying out this style of uh, teaching and learning? Um, I think that the best advice that I got was as a result of the class that I took online from the art of ed flipping the art room where the art teacher had you, or sorry, the professor had you take a sticky, a pad of sticky notes and just write down all of the things that you find yourself repeating all day long, That's great whether it's entrance procedures, whether it's cleanup procedures, whether it's pencil tech, whatever. Um, and then she had us organize them into, okay, procedural things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, it divided by media or by sport or by instrument, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then categorize them as far as the, the most important video that you're going to make and start there. And then she had us, um, make a timeline. So if you're going to implement this, what am I going to do in May? Which mm-hmm. videos am I going to have by the end of the May? Which ones am I going to have by the end of June? And that kind of, I was looking at this task of taking all of my teaching and putting them all um, on videos. And it, it just seemed really overwhelming, but kind of dividing it up and doing it little by little and making it more manageable has been everything. Yeah, has really. been a game changer yeah, for you. Totally. And uh, there's, I have a book here called The Third Teacher. Uh, 79 ways you can use design to transform teaching and learning and it's a fabulous book Um, I just took it out of our library uh, last week Uh, they just got a copy of it but there really are 79 different ways that you can transform learning and when I think of your work I think of the 29th way and the 62nd way 29th way free choice life is full of choices prepare kids by giving them a say at school and your program kids that's all they have is say mm-hmm. you know and number 62 put the fun in fundamentals injecting a learning space with playfulness and humor creates a warm and welcoming atmosphere yeah. talk about how you kind of promote play and exploration oh uh, well actually um it's using the word and explicitly using the word play is an important part of the tab philosophy it is Take, kids have this innate curiosity. They have an innate desire to play. And it's how to take that and instead of squashing it, leveraging yeah. it in the classroom. So once you, once you complete what I call a technique sheet, for example, where you're learning the skills to use a specific media, um, then the next step is to make new discoveries with it. And I'll tell them, okay, here's your chance. I want you to play with the media. What can it do? What can it not do? What is Chalk Pastel really, really good at doing? And what 
kind of work might not be suitable for chalk pastel so that later on down the road when they are designing and proposing their own projects they can make an educated choice of what media to use um and more successfully and right. that's that's coming from them not yeah. coming from me yeah that's wonderful mm -hmm. so to wrap up the show Kristen, just tell people where they can find you ah i have a blog <laughs> um uh, princess arty pants blog spot that is my blog and then i also am on twitter at arty chris arty chris k-r-i-s that's right yeah yep. okay Kristen, thank you very much for being on Thanks the show and sharing your work uh, everybody, uh, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you come back to future episodes, listen to future episodes, and right now you're going to hear the reflections from uh, John Davidson and myself. So I'm sitting with John right now. Uh, we've just listened uh, to Kristen's podcast, even though I sat with her through it. It's always good to listen to the podcast again and uh, just gather my thoughts. So John and I listened to it, and we, we are now ready to share our reflections. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Davidson. Thank you. That was fascinating, and I think it's, it is always great to walk into Kristen's classroom. There's, there's just magic happening in that place, isn't there? Um, and I was, you know, having been an art teacher or taught art within a primary school for a long time, I've always been a little bit, I don't know, there's been discomfort there because basically you are teaching a whole class one skill at one time, and so you have a, I don't know, a unit on ceramics and you've got 18 kids more or less producing the same thumb pot. And there you are. The end of the, the units, so you've got slight variations on a theme. Uh, and that always has been a little bit of a, a discomfort. I, I think I didn't realize there were alternatives. And what Kristen's done is, is flip her classroom, but it's not in the way I, I've uh, come across the flipped classroom before. I've, uh, I dug into this a couple of years ago because I thought this, this has got potential here. Um, but basically the, this, the information I was coming across was about flipping the classroom for um, older students where you would do a lot of front-loading for knowledge and send them off home with various videos where you could they could pause them and comment on them. You could ask questions in the video. Great stuff. But I thought they can't really apply this to primary school a lot of the time. You know, in elementary school, you've got you want the, the students to construct their knowledge in a conversation, especially in a, in a PYP school, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I, I kind of went away from the flipped classroom, thinking, well, does this actually apply? Kristen has come up with a way to absolutely nail this. She has got a perfect situation in which she does not stand at the front of the class all together. Let's practice this skill. She's got those little tables where they've got their sheets. She's got the kids in an amazing routine. You know, she, I, I know she was nervous going into this because classroom management, you don't want chaos in that classroom. And she has not got chaos. She's got kids loving art and engaged in artistic behavior. Um, so Where they find their own entry point. Their own entry point. Yeah. And they are not restricted by, okay, we've got a unit on ceramics. We're all going to do the same thing. They, are, they can explore media. And that is, that's an artist. Yeah. You know? When you take an art degree, you explore media. And we're doing this. The kids of 10, 11, 9. Yeah. These kids are actually being artists. And I think for me, one of the things is 
in a PYP school or any school, are the, are the students being a scientist? Are they actually engaged in being a scientist? Are they being a writer? Are they, are they being an artist? Are they being a musician? And this enables them to be artists. Yeah, and I think a couple of things come to mind just to, uh, I guess, reinforce or add value to what you're saying, but that idea of skill and drill. And in the single subjects, in particular music, art, PE, traditionally it is about skill and drill. And this is a, a great model for allowing skill development, but the front, not the front loading, but the hard work she puts into creating these videos behind the scenes pays huge dividends, right? Yeah. Because once she actually has those sheets ready to go with the QR codes embedded to the flipped classroom type video they're not watching it at home for homework they're doing it in live time Mm -hmm. and uh, added to that is the idea what struck me the most when we were sitting down talking last week during a planning meeting Kristen and I she said you know what Andy this is the first time in 17 years that I've been able to spend so much time one-on-one with students giving timely feedback Mm -hmm. And the research shows that timely feedback is what's most critical, not handing in a piece and receiving feedback after the fact. So uh, embedded within these, these assessment sheets and the, the, the QR codes to the video is that idea of peer feedback as well. So you, got, you have timely feedback from your peers mm-hmm. that you can dismiss if you want, but then yeah. the obligation, each student is obligated to find another um, student to give feedback and then mm-hmm. the non-negotiable is that you you must create another draft yeah. with this feedback yeah. so all of this is happening let me remind you in a 40-minute class yeah absolutely awesome stuff yeah and it was interesting that that short bit which said well when a teacher gives feedback the student is almost obliged to take it on so is that genuine reflection? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think it is. It's like, okay, I've been told to do this, so I'll do it. Whereas the way in which Christians organized it, they actually reflect on the reflection. They think, okay, can I take something from that? Can I pick out bits of that peer feedback that I think is genuine and a way to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, and the idea that it's getting feedback, like we said last week, critical feedback with Brad, Getting feedback is not about your first draft being terrible and full of mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's about receiving something genuine that will help your product, your unique product, get better. And she has a wide range. She has in this unit, she has kids creating earthworms and uh, or drawing pictures of earthworms with Sharpies or whatever it is, like pictures of humans, whatever it is, there's there's lots of choice and variety there, which mm-hmm. uh, taps into that sense of student agency as well. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, uh, last time I was in her classroom a few weeks ago, she, she had the kids, and she very seldom has them all on the, on, the, on the carpet at the same time, but like a plenary session at the end, she said, okay, kids, who had an epic fail today? And you know, half, the, half the hands went up. And you ask a kid, what did you really do badly today? They automatically want to hide it. They want to cover it up. Yeah. These kids are proud that they've actually learned from a mistake their epic fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of that Austin butterfly make the next one. Mm-hmm. Even the next one of Austin's butterflies <clears throat> might not have been as good as the one before. In the end, 
going through that iteration, you mm-hmm. end up with with a great great product. So, yeah. everybody, that's our reflection for this week for uh, Kristen Anson. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we hope you come back to listen next week. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.